before I read this chapter, I want to remind you uh, what happened in chapter 24. Two chapters ago, Saul and his army were hunting David. Saul walked into a cave to relieve himself, not knowing that David and his men were hiding in the back of the cave. So David had the opportunity with Saul alone to kill him, but instead David chose to spare Saul's life. When Saul realized this is what had happened, he asked David for forgiveness and they both went home. That was two chapters ago, okay? So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 26, this is God's word. It says, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gebeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? Now, if you remember, the Ziphites were from the tribe of Judah, same tribe as David, which means these men were David's cousins, and they were selling him out again to Saul. Okay, verse 2. So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. Now already this is beginning to sound like a rerun of chapter 24. The stories are very, very Similar. Verse 3. Saul encamped on the hill of Hakalah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul had came or had come after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while his army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai the son of Zeruai, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please, let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed And be guiltless. And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. 
the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. So again, David has the opportunity to kill Saul. Again, David's friend interprets this as an opportunity for vengeance. And again, the text uses the word hand as a symbol of power. Abishai asks David for permission to pin Saul to the ground with his own spear the way Saul had tried to pin David to the wall twice. Let me pin him to the ground, he says. I only need one shot. But David refuses. Because David trusts that God will kill Saul when God is ready. David understands that God has a lot of options and none of those options involved David. God may strike Saul down the way he killed Nabal in the last chapter. Saul might die of natural causes. Saul might die in battle, David says, but David will have nothing to do with Saul's death. Why another story like this one? I think it's obvious the writer of Samuel wants us to see something important. These stories are so similar. This has to be an important theme in the book, and so we need to hear it again. Because so often, as God's people, we pray to God about our problems. We talk to Him about the things that that are going wrong, that we wish would change. But we already know what we want God to do about it, don't we? Usually. God, I've got this problem, and here's what I want you to do to fix it. We just need God to heal us. We just need God to give us more money. I just need God to fix this relationship. God, will you do that? But in every single one of those circumstances, God has a lot of options. What we want God to do is only one of those options. It seems right to us. But faith, properly understood, is just trust. That's all it means. Will we trust God to handle the problem when He is ready, and in His way. Even if it looks like defeat. That's a major theme in the book of 1 Samuel. And think about David's men. They have got to be frustrated with him at this point, right? At this point, they've been running from Saul for years. And now twice, David has had the opportunity to very easily take the kingdom by force. 
who of us would fault him for doing so, humanly speaking? I mean, if we were there, I'd have been Abishai, man. Look, dude, take the spirit, kill him. <laughs> He's right there. This is, this is easy, right? What are you doing? Now, how do you think the disciples of Jesus felt when their Messiah allowed himself to be captured and crucified? Oh, okay, right? But see, but God knew exactly what he was doing. God always knows exactly what he's doing. He always knows. Doesn't matter if it looks like defeat to us. Doesn't matter. The story continues. David says, But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep. Because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. So David took the spear and the jar of water, just as he had taken the corner of Saul's robe, as proof that he could have killed Saul. But there is a deeper symbolic meaning, which we will consider in a moment for both of those items. We'll come back to that, but instead I want to pause and focus on the last sentence, which says that God caused, God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Saul and his men. This is only the third time in the Bible when God put someone to sleep like this. Can you remember what the other two were? The first one was in the Garden of Eden. It happened when Adam when God put Adam to sleep so that he could take the rib to make his wife Eve. It says that God put him into a deep sleep. It happens again in Genesis to Abraham when God made the covenant with him. He put Abraham to sleep. Same word. And in both of those cases... God did something that only God could do. The fact that he put the person into a deep sleep made that obvious, right? It's obvious Adam had nothing to do with the creation of Eve. It's also obvious Abraham had nothing to do with the covenant that God made with him. The deep sleep proved that. In other words... God is doing something here and He doesn't need your help. He's creating Eve. He's establishing a covenant. But why does God put Saul and his men to sleep? What is God doing? Well, you might say He's protecting David, right? 
I mean, if any of these men wake up and they catch David taking the spear, this story would have a much different ending. But there's something else I want us to think about. 300 years later, the prophet Isaiah wrote these words to the people of Israel. It says, Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep. Same word. And has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. Now, God said this to his own people. And that's not a blessing, that's a curse. The people were spiritually blind. But look closely. Notice that they were responsible for their own spiritual blindness, but they were still helpless. Because God made them that way. It says very clearly that the Lord gave them a spirit of deep sleep. That He has closed their eyes. He has covered their heads. From what? From His Word. Is that strange? Why was Saul helpless in the story? Now, it's easy to look back over Saul's life and look at the mistakes he's made, the insanity. All of that's true, okay? Consequentially, he seems to be walking in spiritual blindness, not listening for the voice of the Lord. But it's also true Saul's helpless in this story because God made him helpless. The writer didn't have to tell us that, right? I mean, we would have assumed that David was just good at sneaking around. (laughs) Very stealthy of you, David, to sneak into a camp of thousands of men and steal Saul's spear. But that's not why David was successful. That's not what happened. It says... David was successful because God had put them all to sleep. And so for the second time, Saul is moments from death and he had no idea because God had orchestrated his helplessness. And not only does God leave Saul helpless, He leaves him and the entire army humiliated. Okay? How humiliating must it have been for someone to sneak in and steal the king's spear while he is surrounded by 3,000 of his best men? And that's where the story continues. For the sake of time, I won't read it, but here's what happens. David goes a safe distance away. He yells back to the camp wakes up the soldiers, 
And he tells them that they all deserve to die because they failed to protect their king. And he's right. How embarrassing was that? No one stayed up to be the night watch? Come on, guys. And then the chapter, chapter 26, ends very similar to the way chapter 24 ended. Saul repents. He confesses his sin again against David. He promises not to chase David any longer. David returns the spear and everybody goes home. That's how the chapter ends. But what I want us to really wrestle with this morning is this idea that God intentionally made Saul helpless, humiliated, and humbled. He allowed David to remove two items from Saul that were highly symbolic. And I told you we'd come back to this, and here it is. First, he takes the spear, okay? We know by now that Saul's spear was a symbol of his power. It was not typically the the weapon of a king. For some reason, Saul had chosen this weapon, and he kept it with him everywhere he went. It was his chosen weapon. It was always by his side. No one uses a spear more often in the Bible than Saul. And God took it away. So that's the first item. The second item was this jar of water. There is nothing special or unique about that jar of water, at least as far as we're told in context. Unless you consider the New Testament. Because when you get to the New Testament, it's interesting that water was sort of a chosen symbol of Jesus and his kingdom. You remember that Jesus' first miracle involved jugs of water, which he turned into wine. With the woman at the well, Jesus describes himself as living water. He says a spring welling up to eternal life. We baptize people with what? Water, right? And then, in John 7, during the Feast of Booths, Jesus did this. This is John 7, 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Do you know what the Feast of Booths was? Feast of Tabernacles, right? It's basically the Feast of Tents. Okay? It was the Jewish Harvest Festival. It was the most joyful time of the year in pretty much every ancient civilization, okay? including ancient Israel. It's still my favorite time of the year, personally. And just like we sometimes go camping in the fall, that's exactly what they did. 
everybody went outside and lived in tents for a whole week to remind them of the way God provided for them in the wilderness. Now see, some of y'all don't like camping because it can be a bit miserable, right? Tent camping, okay? But it's supposed to be. It's supposed to remind you how good you got it when you're not in the tent, right? Have you ever thought about it that way? Now you can think about it that way. But that's the point. That's, there's actually a festival in the Bible about living in tents so that you'll be grateful for your house. <laughs> um, that's what they did. They, they lived in the tents to remind them this is how God provided for us while we were in the wilderness. It reminded the people that their harvest was a gift from God, not something that they had produced alone. And so they gave up the comforts of their homes to remember God's grace, which means it was a lesson in self-reliance. That's what the, the Feast of Booths was about. Now go back to Saul. God took away the spear and the water to show that Saul was completely helpless without him. It was a way to crush his self-reliance. What now, O king? It was a way to humble him. And brothers and sisters, very often God will do the same kind of thing to us. He will take away the things that we think we need to remind us that we only need Him. We cling to our sin the way Saul clutched his spear. Always close by. But God will gladly wrench the idols of His people away from our hands if that's what it takes. He will make us helpless. He will even humiliate us if that's what it takes to humble us. And before you question His ways... Let's bring this full circle. Do not forget that Jesus himself was helpless, humiliated, and humble. Not because he deserved it, but by choice. This was what Jesus chose. Jesus hung on a Roman cross, crying out in thirst, the one who said, I am living water. They offered him sour wine on a sponge to drink. And Jesus did not dodge the spear like David had. They thrust a spear into our king's side. And from the wound flowed blood and water. If you feel helpless, humiliated, and humbled this morning. You are in good company. <laughs> Jesus became all of that so that we can be redeemed and received by the Father. So that we can drink the living water and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Think of all the things that you value most in this life. Just take a moment right now in your mind. If you've got to close your eyes, do that, whatever helps. Just think of the things in your life that you value the most. 
It may be things you already have. It may be things that you want. It might just be things you dream about. What are those things? Could be people, could be possessions, success. What if you lost those things? What if you never get what you want? What if your dreams don't come true? In Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul does just that. He lists all the things that he valued most before Christ. Writes them down in a letter. Then he says this to the church. He says, but whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as trash, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith, through trust in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers and sisters, may God give us the grace to think about our lives in that way. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we read this story, this narrative about Saul and David, and we see Your Spirit come and go, sometimes helping these men, sometimes not, and
there are many lessons, many themes that we can take away from those stories, but the most important is that without you, we are literally helpless. Only by your Spirit are we able to accomplish anything for you. Only by your grace. Only with your help. There is nothing but the blood of Jesus that provides the healing, the righteousness, the safety, the future, the hope that we need. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that our hearts would be encouraged this morning in that, in that story. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and sing.